Good morning, everybody. This is Dr. Bill, your Radio MD. How you guys doing out there? Hey, Joe. Joe? Yeah, you're good. Oh, good morning, I had a little feedback going on there, guy. I hope you turn that loop. Yeah, you got it off. Good guy. Sorry about that, folks. Uh, my uh, my guys in the studio, they had a switch flipped the wrong way. We got it the right way now, and I was hearing myself, which is not a bad thing, except it was delayed about uh, half a second to a second, so I was getting a little confused and wondering where I was. I was looking around the room, and I couldn't find myself, much like the vampire in the mirror in the Geico ad just before I came on. At any rate, I'm back. I was up in Toronto last week, and Pryor and I pre-taped the show, and the guys did it, uh, put it on Sunday, and uh, I hope it went well. I, I didn't listen to it, so it sounded good when we were taping it. But today, I want to shift gears. I'll tell you a little bit about my Toronto trip, because that's going to be the basis for much of the show today. But I want to shift gears and uh, first uh, tell you about what I had to do. While I was in Toronto, I, of course, paperwork, you know, the wife says, oh, take some time off. But that means go up there and get the paperwork done. And every so often, every few years, we have to reapply for our state medical license. And we have to submit a certain number of continuing medical education hours. We have to take certain courses. And we have to meet certain requirements. And we have to attest that we haven't been involved in anything illegal or immoral. And so, you know, that's a good thing. I don't have a problem with that. It forces me to to think about keeping my CME hours up and to stay current in my in my trade. And that's good. I think we should do that. But one of the things that the state has been doing for many, many years now is requiring certain courses to be taken. Uh, they have included such things as domestic abuse, uh, narcotic abuse and the opioid crisis, um, medical errors, and it goes on and on. And it changes every few years, and they add something new or take something out when they realize that it's not a value or it's not helpful. This year, I had to redo this whole thing on medical errors, and that was a one- or two-hour course that I had to take online and then fill out the, the questions and answers and submit that and get credit for that. And it's, it's fascinating because much like the suicide rates and the uh, supposedly decreasing uh, age of our, our longevity is decreasing, the age of death is coming earlier, which is, of course, nonsense. Uh, but the press loves that stuff and they run with it. You know, they're talking one-tenth of one percent change, and even that is questionable. Well, the Board of Medicine requires now that I go through this medical error program every couple of years. And although there are medical errors, you know, we're human and it's, it's, it's a fact of life. Doctors do make mistakes and the, still the biggest problem is the wrong site or wrong procedure surgery done. So a patient who is coming in for their left great toe to be amputated has their right great toe amputated. And well, then that's a medical error, of course. Um, regardless of whether or not the right one was going to come off after the left one, still you got to follow the procedure, you got to follow the, the rules and the regs, and you got to do things in a, in a well-organized and uh, somewhat militaristic fashion so that people don't get hurt. 
there continues to be misdiagnoses on cancer-related conditions, although this is a, a gray area because there are cancers that are tough to pick up. And uh, unless you've been in the business a long time, if you're a young physician, you may not catch some of the subtle signs and, and make the proper diagnosis by doing the proper workup. There are surgical complications. And of course, the surgeons get blamed for anything that happens within a, a set period of time after surgery, whether it's related to the surgery or not. So and I've said this before on the show, if there's a surgical death that is post-operative death unrelated to the surgery, but it's within this time frame of, say, two weeks, then that's still considered a surgical death. And that's a surgical complication. Uh, and that goes on your record. Uh, there is respiratory related conditions, OBGYN conditions. And I got to laugh about the OBGYN stuff. You know, the, the uh, kids that have cerebral palsy, this was blamed by the attorneys on uh, anoxia, lack of oxygen during delivery that would cause his brain damage. I don't think that's been shown to really be true in any studies, but that still is one of those lingering myths in medicine. And so there were a lot of lawsuits back in the 80s and 90s, and this was for kids who had uh, epilepsy, I mean, uh, cerebral palsy, supposedly from being oxygen deprived because of uh, the wrong type or the uh, the improper delivery of the child where they were too long in the birth canal or whatever. So the OBs got whacked with that. Then the attorneys decided that uh, the OBs were doing unnecessary cesarean sections. That's where you open the belly up and the womb and you take the baby out from the front instead of transvaginally. And so then they were suing all the OBGYNs for doing too many cesarean procedures, C-sections. And then it went back the other way. And then some attorneys said, well, you know what? I don't think they're doing enough. And so then the attorneys started suing the OBGYNs because they weren't doing enough because this patient and this baby would have done better if you'd done a cesarean section. So now cesarean sections are back in. So this, you know, a lot of this, it, it kind of goes uh, in great big circles. There's also cardiology related conditions. And I see this and it's not easy. I mean, even for cardiologists, you, you, you hear this story from people, you know, I'm just so fatigued. I, I just feel so bad. I can't do anything. Well, are you having any chest pain? No, I'm not hurting. I just, I get all out of breath and worn out when I try to walk upstairs or do anything. Well, are you a smoker? Yeah. Well, the first thing people are going to think is, well, your emphysema is getting worse and you got to quit smoking. Well, you know what? That's a cardinal sign of, of, a, of a heart related problem is if you're having exercise induced fatigue and increasing shortness of breath with activity, then you better get the heart checked out as well as the lungs. You also have to think about things like anemia. So, you know, there's a lot of comorbidities that go into it. By comorbidities, I mean other disease processes. If you're anemic, you may very well have a hard time walking up the stairs and get short of breath because you need enough blood in your system to carry the oxygen to your muscles so you can function. So at any rate, we have to take this course. And one of the quotes in the, in the lecture that I'm taking here is from a doctor named Brent James, who is the chief quality officer for Intermountain Healthcare. Now, I don't know Intermountain Healthcare, but I'm guessing that's an HMO. 
And, of course, the HMOs are the way most things are going now. And he says, as the chief quality officer, for most of human history, doctors have done more harm than good. Excuse me? We've done more harm than good? The life expectancy is dramatically increased. All-cause diseases are going down. And people are happier and healthier than they've ever been. Well, why is the suicide rate going up then, Dr. Bill? Well, I don't know that it is. I mean, if you listen to the CDC, it sounds like it is. Maybe they're just keeping better records. Maybe they're calling something a suicide that previously wasn't, like an accidental overdose in somebody with chronic pain. Well, I think that they committed suicide. I think that they killed themselves because they weren't happy with being in pain all the time. So there's a lot of different factors that come into play. Now, they're also saying, well, 20 to 30% of healthcare spending is a waste. There's overtreatment, lack of care coordination. That means I didn't know that Dr. So-and-so already did a blood work, blood work up on this patient. But you know what? He did it in his office, and I don't have access to those records. And he's out of town. What am I going to do? Or it's been a month since the patient was over there, and things can change in a month dramatically. Fraud. 20 to 30 percent of healthcare spending is waste because of fraud. Oh, here we go now. Doctors are bad. Administrative complexity. Well, where did that come from? Administrative complexity. That sounds like bureaucracy. That sounds like the government. That sounds like the HMOs. Burdensome rules and regulations. I got to tell you something now. And you may or may not believe me, but they're teaching these young family practitioners and pediatricians to do less to do less workup, to do less treatment. And there is sitting on the outside looking in at these programs with a little bit of expertise, there is a sense that they don't want them to make diagnoses. They don't want them to treat. Well, what are you becoming a doctor for? What is the point of it if you're not going to do the workup and figure out what the disease process is and treat it. Or if you can't find a disease process and you think it's anxiety or depression, get the patient on the proper medications for that. That in and of itself is considered a disease. Anxious depression is a disease. So you say, well, you do too many tests, Dr. Bill. You order too much stuff, and we just did that last month. And, you, and by the way, I read that aspirin's not good for you. I, where did you read that you shouldn't take a baby aspirin? You've got high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, you're a setup for a heart attack, and you were a smoker, and you're overweight, and you're sedentary. So you have all the risk factors. Oh, and by the way, your brother had a heart attack, and your father died suddenly and unexpectedly at the age of 50. And so you think that I'm telling you to take a baby aspirin because I want to harm you? Well, that's what Consumer Reports said. It said that baby aspirins weren't good for you. Really? I haven't seen that in the medical literature. So then you're in this conundrum of spending more time and effort trying to convince people to follow the basic guidelines that are out there. And somebody is saying, well, you're spending too much time and too much money on this patient. And I said, well, what do you want me to do? I mean, the guy came in with high blood sugar. And he says, oh, I didn't know I had diabetes. Well, of course, he's lying. He knew that. So we have to get a hemoglobin A1C, which is another test to show him 
that he does have diabetes. He said, well, yeah, I guess my blood sugar was up in the past. So it's much more complex than what Don Berwick, MD, says, or Dr. Brent says. And to say that we are over-treating or under-treating, as the case may be, or there's lack of care coordination, or that I'm in some way fraudulent in my care of you as a patient. I mean, this is all just more doctor bashing. And it feeds the nihilists, those who believe in not doing anything in medicine, it feeds their cause. Listen, if you don't do anything in medicine, we wouldn't, if we didn't do the things that we did and try and further the knowledge base, and yes, we made mistakes over the years and we will continue to and have misapplications of technology and medication. But overall, overall, things are getting a much, much, a lot better, a lot better. And so I would say to those who are arguing that medical errors are this terrible, oh, by the way, you know, they're saying that it's, first it was uh, 98,000 and that were estimated in 1999, people died from medical errors, directly related to medical errors, their death. Give me a break. Now it's up to three or four hundred thousand, and and these guys that are pumping all this out, these anti-medicine doctors, they're saying that's the third leading cause of death in the United States after heart disease and cancer. Come on, give me a break. First of all, who ends up in the hospital in critically ill situations? Mostly, mostly it's older people who are close to death anyway. And you say, well, they got a wrong dose of medication. They, they were supposed to get penicillin, and they got erythromycin instead. And then they died. And that's, that's the science behind it? That's your proof? One dose of an antibiotic that was uh, given in the wrong place at the wrong time to the wrong patient? I mean, if they have an allergy to it, yeah, I can see that. that maybe they had an allergic reaction, but that's not what they're quoting. That's not what they're looking at. So you have to take all of this with a big, uh, a big grain of salt. And, you know, they're saying now that heart disease, cancer, medical errors right behind heart disease and cancer, two to 300,000 a year. I don't see that. I don't see that. Now, maybe it is true, but I don't believe it. And I don't think you should either. And so this is how my week started off in Canada that I had to go through this and answer all the questions. And, and you know how it is. I mean, you, if you don't do this, you don't get your license. So you just regurgitate back what they ask you. And I, uh, I take great umbrage at this. And then at the end of it, they want to know if there was any financial bias in it. Let me think. Now, of course, I said, yes, there's financial bias. That's the wrong answer, though. You're not supposed to put that. Uh, yes, there's financial bias. These guys, they want to spend the money on something other than patients. What are they going to spend it on? I mean, the medical dollar is there to diagnose and treat people. That's what we do. And there's certainly a, a big push, and I see it in the family practice program, the residency program at our hospital, to get these young kids, young adults, to not treat and not to work the patients up. And they don't, they don't work them up. And then they come on my service, and they, you know, they, they're like, what are you doing all this for? They don't know. They haven't done it. And then I sit down and explain it to them. This is how you diagnose pernicious anemia. This is how you diagnose heart disease. This means that, you know, one intern called me and uh, 
the patient's serum salt was low, and he wanted to know if he should do something about the salt, hold the salt, give more salt. I said, you know, it doesn't have anything to do with the salt in your body. It doesn't tell you the total body salt. The serum sodium tells you the water excess or the water deficit, which is controlled by a bunch of hormones in your kidneys and your brain and so on and so forth. And so I have to go through this with every new class of interns. And a lot of doctors don't understand this. Why? Because they don't teach it. And this is one of the most basic things you need to know if you're going to practice medicine in the hospital, because you got to give fluids and you got to know what the heck you're doing. And so the medical errors, in my opinion, are not as great as the omission that is going on in teaching the young people, the young doctors, how to take care of patients and what the, what the workup means and why we repeat studies. And, well, I just had a CAT scan last month or six months ago on my belly. Well, you know how fast uh, a pancreatic tumor grows? It grows pretty fast. Well, I just had a chest X-ray and it was clear. Yeah, but your lungs are congested now and you've got a fever and you're sick. And I can hear that you have abnormal sounds in your chest. Things can change. They can change overnight. So don't buy all of this nonsense that you hear about over-treatment and human error and doctors are bad. I mean, you know, if, if you can't trust your physician, then you're going to have a hard time because almost all of us at some point in our life will need to go to the doctor. Does it mean that you trust him completely or her completely? No, of course not. You don't trust anybody completely, not even in your marriage, not even in your closest relationships because we're humans. And we might occasionally make a mistake or tell a little lie or forget something that was said or uh, forget to pick up something at the grocery. And, and that's why my wife reminds me multiple times things that she wants me to do because she knows that I might just make a mistake. And so she can't trust me completely. I might forget. I'm busy. I got a lot going on. Did you bring the charts home? Oh, gosh, I forgot. Well, I'm going to have to just remind you more often, and I'm going to blah, blah, blah. And, and honestly, that's true. I mean, you know, and she, she can't trust me fully to do the simple task that she requires of me in, in the process of running our business of a medical practice. So she has to remind me and text me and keep me up to date on what's needed. And that, that's okay. And I think that when you go to the doctor, you should bring in the same kind of, uh, not suspicions, but certainly uh, be aware and ask the appropriate questions and make sure that you are receiving the workup that you need for the problems that you're having and the treatment that's appropriate for whatever disease process you're diagnosed with. It's, it's a partnership, you know, it's, it's a, uh, he who has his disease cannot expect to be cured or healed if the doctor doesn't know what you got and you got to help him. So it's a two way street. And I, I think it's a, a fascinating thing to see what we have to go through. And of course, in another five or 10 years, this will be gone. It'll be something else. It's a major crisis. Well, I got to tell you this, this is, this cracked me up. You know how I'm sure guys out there understand this. Occasionally you spill a little coffee on the kitchen floor on the tile or the linoleum and you grab the dish towel and you wipe it up and you hang the dish towel back up. And the wife sees you do that. Oh my God, put that in the laundry. You're a filthy pig and, blah, 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 and on and on. You know how this goes, guys. So my wife is ironing my shirts and I'm watching her. 
my clean shirts. <laughs> she spills a little coffee on the floor. And guess what she uses to wipe it up? One of my shirts. And then she just keeps on ironing it. I, I said, Mian, what are you? you'd be yelling at me. She just laughed and broke up because, you know, she'd been busted. And, uh, but that, that's human nature, don't you know? Don't you know? So now, the next thing I got to tell you about on my great ventures up to the frozen tundra, I went to the Ontario Cystic Fibrosis Gala. Um, you buy a, a seat at the table, and it's a fete, a gala, and the theme this year was Oktoberfest, uh, so people had on lederhosen and hats and, you know, have some fun. There's uh, free wine and beer and uh, a, a good meal and entertainment and silent auctions and presents. And you buy a key to the lockbox and there's a diamond studded necklace in it. And you, you, you have an opportunity to gamble a little bit in that respect and chip in some more money for the cause. Got the wife a nice ring in the silent auction for her birthday. Today's her birthday, everybody. So <clears throat> the Canadians had their election last week, and Trudeau, the young liberal, got back in just by a margin. He's, I think he got about 34%. And then the conservative guy got 33 or 32%. And then the uh, left-wing guy, Singh, uh, the the new guy in the, in the arena, he got – a good percentage. So he's going to be the kingmaker as was predicted last week on the show. And, uh, so it's, it's a very divided country because like the United States, half are ultra liberal and the other half are ultra conservative. And it pretty well is split at the border between Ontario and I think it's Manitoba or Saskatchewan, the province just West of Ontario. And so their country is split. So I'm in Toronto, which is an ultra liberal city. It's polyglot. It, you know, people from all over the world have immigrated there. And so I'm at the cystic fibrosis ball and I go up to the bar, leave the ballroom, go outside. And there's a bunch of guys at the bar and they're drinking and laughing and having a good time getting drunk, whatever. And, uh, one of them's name is Mohammed. And so I kiddingly said, Oh my God, a Muslim, somebody get me my scimitar. I'm, and so then, you know, the good laughing kind of thing started and then it started to deteriorate a little bit and then got into President Trump. Oh, my God. You would have thought that I had hit the fire alarm in that building. I mean, they went ballistic. And so Mohammed's yelling at me, he's a criminal. He needs to be locked up. And I'm like, oh, what what did he do? What what part of the Constitution did he did he uh, break or did he not follow? He said, Section 68. I said, what are you talking about? There's no Section 68. He said, yes, there is. Well, guess what? I was carrying in my pocket. I've got a little vest in size, you know, pocket-sized uh, copy of the Constitution and of the Declaration of Independence. So I pull it out and I say, here, show me. There are no sections in the, in the Constitution. There's articles and there's paragraphs. And, of course, they all jumped out. you got the Constitution, and they're opening it up and looking at it. And they realized that they had been had. Oh, my God. So it just deteriorated from there. And I said, Muhammad, you're a liar. And, and of course, he was a liar, and I caught him red-handed. Oh, then he's back and forth between his buddies and coming over to me. And, and you know, another drunk guy is, oh, hey, Doc, you don't know who you're talking to. This guy's a billionaire. He's the head of the Toronto Police Force. That's a provincial judge. 
excuse me, does, does that mean I'm going to stand here and, and have them lie to me and uh, not call them out? I'm calling you out. You're liars. You don't know what you're talking about. So Mohammed's final argument was that his ex-wife, who lives in Cape Cod in Massachusetts, by the way, but, you know, communist country up there, their son has an Arabic name, a Hispanic name, and, uh, you know, whatever the last name is. And so his wife, after Trump got elected, called him. Now, this is why he thinks Trump is uh, a criminal and should be in jail, that his wife called and said that she was afraid that if they didn't change their son's names to English-sounding European names and not have Arabic and Hispanic names, that Trump would kick him out of the country, that he would be deported. Well, he's born in the United States. He's a U.S. citizen. He can have whatever name he wants. This was Mohammed's argument for Trump needing to be in jail. His wife was upset. Now, I don't know about you guys, but if your spouse is upset, first thing you do is keep you cool, keep you calm, don't react. And this this kind of reactive, uh, emotional, knee-jerk response to whatever is going on during the day, it just isn't worth it. It's not going to cut it. And I, I think that this just goes to show uh, how insane not only in the United States, but in Canada, and I'm guessing a lot of the world, people have become over a president who's got a big mouth. Who cares? Things are doing great. We're doing well. And he's brokered a, a temporary ceasefire, hopefully it becomes permanent in Syria. For those of you who have not kept up, uh, Turkey sits on top of Syria, and it also borders uh, Iraq. And to the north are the former Soviet Union republics or neighbors. And then not too far away from that, they're touching the Soviet Union. So they're, they're right in the middle of it all, and they're right next to Greece. They're at the, at the northeast corner of the Mediterranean. The Mediterranean is kind of a, I'd say, kind of an oblong, pill-shaped body of water that is an offshoot of the Atlantic. And uh, you all know the countries, uh, the Western European countries that are on the Mediterranean, Spain, Italy, France, uh, we all know that. And then the North African countries that are on there, Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco, uh, Egypt, Libya. Uh, so we, we all know a little bit of the geography there, but Turkey is in the middle of this mess. And the president wants to get our troops out of Syria. Uh, I did not agree with him initially, but uh, if what he says comes to pass, that is that the Turks and the Russians are going to take over the policing of the area and that they'll protect the uh, minority populations like the Kurds and the Syrians who have, by the way, come across the border into Turkey to escape the civil war. There's hundreds of thousands of them that are in Turkey and the European Union was supposed to kick in $50 billion to help take care of these folks. And they only kicked in $25 billion. Well, you know, there's a lot that Turkey has on its shoulders. It's sitting between a lot of great powers. It's a member of NATO. And it's been integral in this process from the get-go. And it's sitting in one of the most troubled regions of the world that has been in turmoil and upheaval for not just decades, but for millennia. 
So I'm thinking maybe the president's got the right idea and he wants to lift the sanctions that we have on Turkey and see if the Turks and the Russians can take care of this. And we will talk about that when I come back. And when I come back, I'm going to ask a question. In fact, I'll ask it now. So when I get back, you can answer it. I want to know what the Kurdish YPG YPG is. Whoever gets that right, I'll give you one of my famous mugs. And if, by the way, you didn't get yours yet, and I owe you one, call back in and give the guys your name and address again, because sometimes a wife uh, loses those things. But don't tell her I said that. I'm Dr. Bill. I'll be right back. With SRN News, I'm Michael Harrington in Washington. President Trump has just gone on the national airwaves uh, at this hour to announce that Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi is dead after a U.S. military operation in Syria targeted the ISIS group leader. Mr. Trump said in a statement to the nation from the White House diplomatic room that al-Baghdadi is dead, fulfilling the top national security priority of his administration. He says no U.S. personnel were lost in the mission. Al-Baghdadi presided over ISIS global jihad and became arguably the world's most wanted man. He is now no longer with us, according to the president this morning. A sheriff's official says two people have been killed in a shooting at an off-campus Texas A&M University party that also left at least 14 people wounded. Happened late last night. And more residents in California, Sonoma County, having to get out of their homes because of the wildfire. This is SRN News. Dr. Bill for Bay Area Medical, located at 6399 38th Avenue North in St. Pete, 727-384-6411, 727-384-6411. Full-service clinic with x-ray, heart imaging, ultrasound, stress testing, and minor surgery. We provide quality health care in a warm and friendly atmosphere. We are multilingual, well-trained, and certified. Most American insurance and new patients accepted. Bay Area Medical, home of can care, 727 7273846411 Hello, this is Dr. Bill Handelman for our good friends at Tampa Bay Imaging. TBI provides state-of-the-art MRI and CT scanning with the lowest radiation possible. Most insurance plans accepted and self-pay rates are very competitive. TBI is conveniently located in Tampa and St. Pete with evening and weekend appointments, so call TBI today or ask your doctor. In Tampa, call 813-386-3674. St. Pete, call 727-545-9674. The Constitution and the rule of law are under attack. Radical socialism, illegal immigration, racial divides, abortion, all threatening the bedrock of our nation as the far left wages war against America's soul. Join Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, and Dennis Prager for intelligent answers to these assaults on our nation. Don't miss the War for America's Soul tour with Hugh Hewitt. You know, if they were focused on the skyrocketing costs of prescription drugs, I think the American people might trust their presidential candidate. Mike Gallagher. Bombshell! Russia collusion! Bombshell! He's a racist! Bombshell! Here comes a reception! Bombshell! Ukraine! And he just keeps chugging along. And Dennis Prager. Was this senior... U.N. environmental official, a liar? I don't think so. I think he was a hysteric. Thursday, November 7th, at the Palladium in St. Pete, the War for America's Soul Tour. VIP opportunities available. Get your tickets today. TheAnswerTampa.com. Sponsored by Autoglass America. Did you know the human body does not make its own vitamin C? 
Taking vitamin C is one of the best things you can do for your health, and aqua powders is the best way to get vitamin C. Aqua powders vitamin C is delicious when added to water and provides you with 2,000 milligrams of vitamin C to boost your immune system and increase your energy. Transform your water into wellness with Aqua Powders Vitamin C, available at Amazon. That's Aqua Powders with a Z, available at Amazon. Here is your exclusive AccuWeather forecast. It'll be humid today with intervals of clouds and sunshine. Today's high 87. Partly cloudy tonight, very warm and humid with a low of 76. Warm and humid tomorrow with periods of clouds and sun. Expect an afternoon shower or thunderstorm around tomorrow's high 89. For weather anytime, download the AccuWeather app. That's your AccuWeather forecast. I'm Drew Shannon for AM860, The Answer. And I'm back. This is Dr. Bill, your radio MD. I'm on AM860, The Answer. And you can reach me worldwide on the web or on your radio if you're in the Tampa Bay area by tuning in to 860 AM or going to my website, drbillradiomd.com. That's drbillradiomd.com. Click Listen Live. We also archive the shows, so you can go down to the vault. And you can also get to me from the radio station's website, am860theanswer.com. And uh, you can pick up the show there, look for the Sunday schedule, and click Listen Live, and you got me. Actually, I think there's a Listen Live button at the top of the web page, and whatever's playing at that point in time on the radio, you click that, you'll hear it. So 9 to 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are an iHeart station, and this is Interactive Talk Radio. I'm at 877-969-8600. That's 877-969-8600. And my question today for you is, what is the Kurdish YPG, the three letters YPG? And if you know the answer to that, give us a call, 877-969-8600, and we'll get one of my famous mugs out to you. By the way, people love those mugs, Joe. I can't believe it, Ken. They're all over the radio station, I hear. And that's a good thing, because we want my name out there. Oh, boy. Well, we were talking about the uh, the situation in Syria and the president's brokering um, a, a peace agreement or a ceasefire, and I don't know how long this will last. Hopefully it will last uh, indefinitely. There have been several ceasefires before during this uh, drawn-out and tragic civil war in Syria, and the whole region has been kept in unrest, in part because of the Iranian interference uh, in part because of the differences between Turkey and the Syrian ruling party, the Ba'athist party, which were the same party as uh, the Ba'athists in Iraq that we overthrew, Saddam Hussein's gang. And we've been involved there. And, of course, ISIS got a foothold in Syria because of all the unrest. The Kurds occupy uh, a band of northern Syria uh, headed into Iraq. Uh, Northern Iraq is Kurdish territory. It's part of of Iraq. Uh, And the northern part of Syria that is Kurdish is also part of or was part of Syria. Things are changing in that area, that region, not necessarily for better, but we'll see what happens. 
Now, who are the Kurds? The Kurds are the the collision of the Mongolian hordes and the Arabs. And as the Mongols came through that area and conquered it, uh, that that strip that they came through, they actually uh, interbred with the folks there. And so the Kurds have a little bit of of my wife's Mongolian blood in them, although they look like Arabs. If you look a little closer, their faces are a little bit rounder. Uh, not all of them, but uh, some of them, and their eyes are a little bit more slanted than than a Western or Caucasian eye. And so they're a little bit different ethnically. They are Muslims. Uh, they're Sunnis. And uh, they, they, they're they pretty modern. I mean, they're not fanatical. I, I, I know several Kurds, and they're good people. You know, they're nice people, just like in anywhere in the world there's good and bad. But uh, they are an ethnically different group, and they have been fighting with Turkey and other countries in that region because they want to establish their own country, Kurdistan. They want their own Kurdish country. And, of course, they're sitting on some valuable property because there are oil fields and minerals and so on and so forth. And Turkey is also uh, a well-established country. It's been there for hundreds of years. They have set borders. They have their own uh, language and ethnicity and culture and uh, so on and so forth. And they don't want to give up territory. They, they, they want to maintain their autonomy and their independence and their borders. By the way, they're part of NATO. And they wanted to be part of the European Union, but the Europeans wouldn't let them in because of what the Europeans perceived as uh, civil rights violations and uh, an attempt by the Turks to dump uh, poor immigrants into the European Union. Whether that was a good idea or not, I don't know, because now the Turks have turned to the Russians and are befriending them. And I think that part of what our government is doing is trying to say to the Turks, look, we're still your friends and we still want to work with you. So why don't we back out and you take over some of the responsibilities here. You can even ask the Russians to help you. And we'll just kind of fly our drones over and keep an eye on things. And uh, we'll lift all the sanctions we have on you. And in return, you know, you guys be a little bit nicer and uh, be tolerant of non-Muslims in your country and try to keep your democracy because Erdogan, their president, is basically a dictator now. He's pretty much taken over the country and is ruling with an iron fist. And the Turks have had a 100-year history of democracy, so we're, we're hoping that they'll turn that back around and, and we'll, have, uh, we'll have more of a democracy there and maybe we can convince the Europeans to take them in and you know, partly uh, the way you could change people is by assimilation. You assimilate people and you take them in and you uh, expose them to your culture and they bring some of their culture into it. And, you know, you think that your culture, our culture is the better culture because they want to come here. And so that's reasonable. And But they say, but, you know, we have some good customs too. Uh, you know, try this falafel, try this taco. And all of a sudden, tacos are popular. And then we say, well, you know, the Hispanics, the Mexicans, whatever, they're not bad people. And there's a lot of Hispanic Americans that have been here for generations and generations, especially in the Southwest and in Texas, who left with Texas when Texas seceded from, uh, uh, fought their war of independence from Mexico. A lot of Tejanos, Texas Mexicans stayed, and, and uh, there's families that go back 150 years now that are Americans with Hispanic names. So we, we assimilate, and in doing so, we 
bring people into our culture and we help them to understand what we have, why we have it and how it works. And they bring with them uh, some positive aspects of their culture. And we add those to our culture, just like we add words. We take uh, hundreds, thousands, millions of words, not millions, uh, but probably 100,000 words in the English language are directly out of other languages like orange. That's, that's right out of the Hindi language, the, the Indian, Asian Indian languages, orange. And there's just word after word that we have just assimilated and brought into our language. And now it's part of the English language. And you probably didn't know this. When Shakespeare wrote, there were 250,000 words in English, roughly. Now there's 1.5 million words in the English language in the dictionary. Big jump. Well, we didn't just create all of those words. We co-opted some of those. And so we, we have a, a valuable asset in immigrants, but we want it, of course, in an orderly fashion. And we have to respect other countries' desire to have their borders protected. If we're going to protect our border, then they should be able to protect their borders and to have some kind of orderly and organized fashion that people can immigrate into their country. So as a humanitarian gesture, the Turks were letting the Syrians come into their country because Syria is on their southern border. And there were 350,000, Syrians at the time of the ceasefire a couple of weeks ago that were in Turkey. And so the Turks agreed to, Erdogan said, well, we'll have a 20-mile buffer zone in northern Syria, and there'll be uh, policing of that by us and the Russians to keep things orderly. The Syrians can go back home, and the Kurds can go wherever they want, but they can't come into our country. And they've got to stop these terrorist attacks. Now, the YPG, nobody's called me. I'll give it one last chance. 877-969-8600. That's 877-969-8600. The Kurdish YPG, who are they? At any rate, the YPG are a militant group, and they're fomenting rebellion against the Turks because they want a chunk of Turkey. Well, how would we feel if a group of young Mexicans decided that they wanted to foment rebellion and start a war with us in, in Texas or Arizona or New Mexico and take a chunk of Mexico for them and form their own state? I don't think we'd be too tolerant of that. And there are accusations that the Turks have committed genocide, and they, they probably did. I mean, they went after the Armenians, but that was 100, 150 years ago. And I don't know, they, maybe they are killing the Kurds in their country. Nevertheless, you can't have someone bopping you in the head with a baseball bat and not react. That's just human nature. So we've got this buffer zone now, and apparently a few hundred thousand Syrians have gone back into the buffer zone. I'm guessing that a lot of these folks have roots in this area, and they want to go home. And the Kurds want their own area, and the Turks want the Kurds to not foment rebellion within their borders. And so we'll see how this peace accord goes. Uh, I think it's interesting that the president is willing to work this closely with the Russians and, and the Turks, but also understand that he wants to get our troops out of there. He is not a man of war. 
despite what people say. He uh, wants to get out of these areas. He made this part of his campaign promises when he was running in 16 uh, to get out of uh, Afghanistan, to get out of the Middle East and let them take care of their own problems. Of course, the the counter to that is that if we completely abandon this, that elements like ISIS and the Taliban will get back in and take over, and then we'll have to go back in because they will not only uh, foment rebellion and and chaos and destruction within the region there and try and take over, they'll also send suicide bombers over here to try to blow up some more of our buildings. And we don't like that. That's not good. So Turkey's got this proposed safe zone. It's about 20 mile strip in northern Syria. And it's going to be policed by Russian troops Russian military police, and uh, that that will be supplemented or augmented by Turkish uh, forces. And Erdogan has said that if the Russians don't do the job, then the Turks are going in there and they're going to do it themselves and they'll do it the way they want, which might be a little bit heavier handed than you and I would like to see. But if somebody doesn't step up to the plate here, that's what's going to happen. And I don't know, maybe that's not a bad thing. Maybe the president is right. Now, I'm, I'm certainly not in the middle of the discussions or the negotiations. And I don't know all the ins and outs. And I don't know what the backdoor deals are uh, and what the, 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 the secret handshakes are. But certainly there's more to it than that. Uh, publicly, if this can work, then we're dropping the sanctions on Turkey, the, the economic sanctions. And the Turks are grateful for that because we're a big trading partner of theirs, or we at least we have been in the past. And so Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, and, and Erdogan, the Turkish president, are going to have a summit on all this, and they're going to limit their incursions, uh, the Turkish incursions into Syria, and let the Russians step in and take over. And apparently our Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, uh, helped broker the deal, and also Vice President Pence, who's a, a two really upstanding and articulate guys, uh, have been in the middle of this, and, and we're grateful for that. And our troops get to come home, at least temporarily. Some have been sent into Iraq, and the Iraqi government's now saying, we don't want you here. And again, I say we should have never left the base in Basra. We should have just declared that that was part of the deal after we kicked out Saddam Hussein, that we kept that base, billions of dollars poured into that thing, and then Obama just walked off and left it. And now here we are, back in the same position that we were in Iraq, where we don't have anybody on the ground, no boots, and we don't have any real uh, um, presence there to remind the Iraqis to behave. And the Iraqis, by the way, are still rioting in the streets because of the corruption in their government. And because of the problems that have continued to linger since their upheavals and their war with us and their civil wars and their their internecine wars with uh, the Iranians and all kinds of problems that the Iraqis have had. And here's a country with a huge oil reserve and a lot of income, and it's not getting down to the folks on the street. And they're upset. You can't blame them. There's no jobs. Kids are running around crazy. I mean, you know, it's it's. It's like the 1960s in the inner city in the United States. Uh, we, we're going to see problems. And if we had stayed there, those problems would not have been as great because we would have stepped in and said, you know, this is corrupt and you can't do this. If you do that, we're going to do this. 
and we want this guy out of power and this guy in. And people say, oh, they should have the right to their own self-determination. You know, if it's rigged, if the, if the ballots are rigged, that's not self-determination. That's not self-determination. Democracies don't work by everybody just getting together and holding up at their hand and saying, yeah, we like democracy. Let's make it work. You have to have policing of the democracy. You've got to have fairness. You've got to have a sense of fair play. You've got to have a rule of law. You've got to have people who are willing to be honest and decent in, in their actions. And, and you have to have people who are willing to say, no, I didn't win this election, so I'm, I'm stepping down because it's somebody else's turn. They got elected. And that's what we do in this country for the most part. Nothing's perfect, as I've said before, but it's a lot better than most of the world. And I think that Americans forget how corrupt so much of the world is. They don't realize the problems. And, you know, I go back to the statement I've said over and over again, colonialism ended way too early. A lot of these countries are just not ready to take on their own self-government and governance because they're so corrupt. You know, one tribe gets in. Another one's kicked out, and the tribe that's in says, well, you know, they took advantage of us when they were in power, so we're going to take advantage of them while we're in power. We're going to see what we can get and put into our bank account in Switzerland, in Geneva, uh, or in, in Bern, or whatever city has the big banking industry in it. So the president may have a good idea. We'll see how it plays out. I have been opposed to pulling out of the region completely. Uh, Maybe the Russians will step up and do something. We'll see. We hope. We hope. And it will be fascinating to see. And if it doesn't work, well, we need to have troops nearby just in case. And the president has said that if this doesn't work, we'll go back in. And, you know, Senator Lindsey Graham has been critical of the president's decision to withdraw troops from northern Syria. Uh, but he has come on and the TV yesterday or the day before and said, well, you know, it might not be a bad idea what the president has brokered. Maybe we should let it fly and see what happens. That, that's something that we have to think about and that we have to give a chance. I'm, I mean, we need to try different things. If one thing's not working, let's try something else. And the big thing is going to be protect the Kurds who have been our allies throughout our battles in the Middle East the past 20, 30 years. And I think that that can be done. And I'm sure that we quietly are leaving troops and supplies there to help them out. But the, uh, the Turks and Erdogan have warned the YPG that that's a radical fraction, small subsegment uh, of the Kurdish population that is a left-wing militant group, and they are carrying out terrorist attacks against the Turks in southern and, and eastern uh, uh, Turkey, and, and you know, I can't blame the Turks for being upset. And, and you know they're going to get mad, and they're going to go in, and they're going to wipe out not only the YPG but anybody around them. And uh, you know, what are you going to do? I mean, you can't tell them they don't have the right to self-defense any more than you can tell us we don't have the right to control our own borders. Yes, we do, and they have the right to control their borders. And they have the right to self-defense. They're recognized as a country by the United Nations. They're part of NATO, as I said earlier. They're a trading partner of the United States and of the European Union. And they've had a lot dumped on them because of the Syrian civil war and because of the Kurdish YPG's incursions into their territory, into their state, into their country, causing problems. So, you know, what are you going to do? Um, but we'll... 
I think we should make sure that we're taking care of and helping out our Kurdish allies, nice people. And uh, I've got a few Kurdish doctor friends, and I just love them to death. They're 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 wonderful, uh, good people to work with. Well, now I want to take a minute and shift gears a little bit. I'm I'm kind of tired of talking about the Middle East, but I want to remind you about these 32 people or 34 people. Oh, no, 39, I'm sorry, 39 people that were found dead in the back of a uh, refrigerated uh, truck, you know, one of those semi-tractor trailers uh, who had suffocated to death. They were largely, from what we know so far, Vietnamese uh, who were trying to sneak into Great Britain through the European Union, and they paid thousands and thousands of dollars per person and this isn't the first truckload of, of people that were being smuggled into Great Britain that uh, suffocated. And so all 39 of these people suffocated in the back of this truck about 20 miles outside of London. And uh, there have been three or four people arrested for human trafficking and for uh, manslaughter because of the deaths of these, these folks. And one of the young women who was in the trailer and was dying and realized that she texted her parents and apologized to them for uh, leaving Vietnam and, and trying to get into uh, the West and do a better job and have a better life. And she said, I'm dying, I'm suffocating to, to death, and I love you people, and I'm, I feel so bad that I made such a terrible decision. And, uh, and she died. Yeah, pretty sad situation. So we need to do something about this. Uh, you know, we need to stop this illegal, illegal immigration at all levels in all countries. We need a little law and order, folks, not only because it protects you and me, but also it protects the people who are uh, trying to go around the legitimate system and get in the back door. It just creates more problems in the long run. And I think that we have to be more diligent and not give up on our control of the borders and not let the left bully us into thinking that we're doing something bad or wrong. We're not. We're acting in everybody's best interest and we're good people. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to have a secure border. Well, it's getting close to the end of the show. Oh, I got to tell you this. I don't know if I told you this at the end of my argument with the guys up in Canada, the billionaire guy came up to me and pushed me and told me, get out of here. Well, you know, it's not my home, not my country. I said, okay, and I left. And that is the story of Toronto this year. How much time we got left? 30 seconds. Oh, my God. Joe, you doing okay, bud? I think so. How's Ken doing? I think he loves you. Oh, my God. Isn't that wonderful, folks? The, the guys in the studio, we're all huggy-kissy. Well, I will see you guys next week. And don't forget to listen in. I'm Dr. Bill, your Radio MD, and I'm out of here.